Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name, and we seek to come in the power and and through the presence of your Holy Spirit in worship. We give thanks to you, Lord God, that we could sing your praises this morning to know and, and as well as to acclaim your great faithfulness, your love for us, the truth that you imparted to us, the life that you've given to us in Christ. What a blessing. And we here, as we are before you, we know our own unworthiness. We know that we are just but dust. And that, Lord, even this week, our attention has not been so to you as it should. So we ask that you would uh, raise up within us through your spirit an attentiveness to your word as you bring it forth today through this clay vessel. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You saw last week as we were dealing with the marriage relationship between a man and a woman that that relationship truly matters to God. In fact, it is something that God has designed. It's part of his blueprint. And that marriage relationship is ultimately to give glory and honor to God. The married couple join as one flesh before God, were to fulfill God's designed roles as husband and wife. And it was to be done by God's grace and through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And it was, in essence, as it was lived out in faith, to become an image, if you will, a miniature of what Christ's infinite love is in relationship to his bride, the church. The underlying assertion that we looked at last week was that the marriage partners were to be in submission to one another in reverence to Christ, Ephesians 4, 21. And as we read and discovered this morning, as we read the text, the principle of submission in reverence to Christ carries over into the roles of parents and their children as God designed the institution of the family. When God said to Adam and Eve there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, the bearing and the raising of children in the family unit was in view. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 127, verse 3, behold, Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So as we look at this text here in Ephesians chapter 6, the focus of view right now is on children. Paul says very clearly, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In other words, children who are being raised and cared for and given guidance and protection within the Christian family by their parents while they're living at home are to obey them in the Lord. And Paul says, 
for this is right. Meaning, it is the right thing to do, children. It is the righteous way in which you are to conduct your lives to fulfill your roles as a child in the family with your parents. It is to be done as if you are obeying the Lord himself. And I'd like to add that a child cannot claim to be right with the Lord if he or she is not obeying their parents. Let me say that again. A child cannot claim to be right with the Lord if he or she is not obeying their parents. Disobedience to parents was then and is today the characteristic of unbelief, of pagans. It's found in Romans chapter 1 and verse 30. And we are warned through the letter that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that indeed this sort of rebellious nature of children not obeying the parents is going to be a pattern in the last days. Does this mean that all children are to obey their Christian parents? You heard the answer. That's the short answer. Yes, they are commanded by the Lord to obey their parents. Yet someone may be objecting right now and saying, but, but you don't know my child. My child has a strong will. And he or she, she they question my authority every single day. Have you been blessed that way, parents? They go on to say that it may be possible for a compliant child, but not my child. No, you don't know my child. Well, I'd like to say to you, if you're a compliant child or a, or a strong-willed child or any other child on the spectrum there, I want you to understand that the Scriptures are clear. There are no exemptions based on a child's personality. Nor are there any excuses that could be constructed by classical psychology that a child born is a blank slate and that his or her behavior is caused by their environment. By the way, that's called determinism, and it's false. Because even though the environment has a significant influence on a child's development, the core issue is this, that all children born are sinners. They are not innocent, nor are they a blank slate. Just as King David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. 
And as Paul alluded to back there in chapter 2 of verse 3, that we are and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There is a graphic example in the Scriptures about why this must be so. In the life of Hagar, when she was pregnant with her child. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 16, and look with me at verse 11 and 12, you'll see why this is so. Genesis chapter 16 and verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord said to her, meaning Hagar, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call him Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And then he says this, He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Just in the context of this particular passage in Genesis chapter 16, so we see not only in Ishmael, but in all children, a certain bent that they have in their person, even from birth. They are inherently bent to do things wrong because they are sinners. Do you ever notice that no one ever has to teach a child to act sinfully? You know why? It comes to them naturally. <laughs> I had uh, an illustration of this brought to me as I was driving home on Friday afternoon. I was going home on this past Friday afternoon, I was going to stop in and get a bite to eat at home and check on Joy. And um, as I'm going over the railroad bridge there on East Summit, heading towards my house, there was a car parked on the side here, and then all of a sudden, this Asian toddler leaps out behind the car, and he stands there and he goes like this. And then, and then he makes another signal like this. And then he goes like this to stop me. I didn't know whether to laugh in hysterics or to hit my brakes. Fortunately, I did both. He was, at that particular point in time, breaking, I'm sure, his parents' instruction, don't go out in the street, but because he thought he was a power ranger... He was going to stop me right in my tracks. And whether it is as innocent a sin as that, as we call innocence, or it is the defilement of a parent's instruction, children sin against God. And therefore, we need to realize that as parents, we continually, just like that mother, need to go and grab them and to bring them back to the safe place in the Lord. 
In verses 2 and 3 here, Paul enjoins this first command, children, obey. It is a command that's in the imperative. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He says this. He brings up the fifth commandment in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. He says, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. There's a twofold benefit for children who follow this command. It's very clear here as they obey their parents and honor their parents. The first one is spiritual, and that is that it may be well with you. Do you realize that it it is not well with you, child, when you're disobeying your parents? Not only on the scale of your parents' authority over you, but it's, it's not right also in the authority that you're under God. And whether you're uh, that little Asian toddler or you're in your 90s, the way of a transgressor is what? Hard. But there's not only the spiritual benefit, there's also this temporal benefit. He says that it may, that that you may live long on the earth. Remember back at the passage that we read there in Proverbs chapter 4? Listen to this again. The instruction of a father to his son. Hear my son and accept my sayings and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Even Paul, as he's dealing with Timothy, his protege, who will be taking on the ministry of the gospel long after Paul is dead, says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Children, You were created by God. You were placed as a blessing to your family. The parental roles of your parents have been given to them by God. Your role is to obey them in the Lord. Now we turn to the other section of this reading in verse 4. 
because there is this interplay and response that comes through the time of disciplining our children that parents, particularly fathers, need to remember. He says to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers have that responsibility. It is the father's role in raising his children that is of utmost importance when it comes to the relationships within the family today. It was then, it is today. Fathers are instructed to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But he also mentions that there is one major obstacle that short circuits, if you will, dad's parental responsibility. It is when he is provoking his children to anger. That word provoke is in the present tense. It gives the idea of this being a, uh, that, he, that, that the father is prohibited, if you will, from continually arousing a child's anger. Or probably uh, the idea here is repeatedly, if you will, making your child angry. Or allowing it to fester so much that there is this deep-seated anger in your child. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians in Chapter 3, verse 21 says it this way. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. How does this happen? Well, it can come from a father giving unjust demands. That will definitely cause a child to get frustrated in anger. Or they can be unreasonable in their discipline, in the severity of the discipline. But it can also come, and often does come, by unremitting criticism that injures the child's spirit, his self-respect, and it produces bitterness, even hatred towards the father, but also to both parents. And because this is directed to fathers, I don't want mothers to think that they have no responsibility here. Because Paul, in his instructions, does not minimize nor relieve a mother's parental responsibility in raising the children but it does reinforce that the husband's headship within the family and this disciplining and caring and nurturing their children will be held accountable before God for his household. It is a fact that raising children in a Christian home takes the united efforts of a parental team. Both mom and dad, 
to bring up their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, that they need to work together exercising discipline in a correct and proper loving way to correct, if you will, the corrupt attitudes and actions that will come up in a child's life. Which also, I might add, does transgress God's moral principles. And they are together to teach and to train their children to know and apply God's truth for their lives. And they're to do it in what we all know is true is a hostile world that diabolically opposes God and God's design for marriage as well as for family on every level. Wayne Mack, in his book entitled Strengthening Your Marriage, says this, the task is so great the problems so many, the opposition so strong that mutual effort and cooperation will be required. The husband simply cannot do it alone. He needs to work as part of a team. He must have the full assistance of his wife. This final section in verses 5 through 9 are other relationships that matter within the church. It did back then, it does today. The context is showing that it is the relationships between slaves and their masters. And in the Roman Empire, masters and slaves were two main divisions. There was the working class and the ruling class. There was the bond and there was the free. And it had a direct impact on the first century church. It was this dominating social construct, if you will, which at times was cruel and it was inhumane. And there, from this imperfect, if you will, social construct, was the formulation of the empire's commerce. For both masters and slaves became members of the Ephesian church. That means that masters and slaves as believers assembled together to worship the Lord. And because of these distinctions, there was the potentiality of conflict within the body of Christ. And while the Bible does not condone nor condemn these roles, what it does make clear is this, that being in Christ, such distinctions of roles are temporary in nature and must be conducted in a morally Christ-honoring manner. For in Christ, there is neither slave nor free man. But because these two classes denoted a societal construct of commerce in the first century, it is reasonable to seek to apply the godly principles Paul gives and teaches here 
to a not too dissimilar relationship between an employee and an employer in commerce today. And I'm just going to make several points. In verse 5, one of the things that we see here is that the Christian slave slash employee should be respectful as well as obedient to their employers due to their position of authority. And they're to do it in the sincerity of their hearts as to Christ. That means if you're an employee, you're to serve your employer with obedience and with a respectful heart and behavior. In verses 6 and 7, Paul tells the Christian employee slave to not do their work half-heartedly. Their service and their labor is not to be done hypocritically. In other words, giving lip service or eye service, as he indicates in the Scriptures. But they're to remember that they are servants of Christ. And therefore, they are to do the will of God from the heart in their workplace. They are called, we are called, to faithfully fulfill our job duties with goodwill, with diligence, and with eagerness, as if we are serving Christ himself and not just men. Therefore, we are to do our work heartily, and we are to be hard workers. The third point he makes in verse 8, Christians must know as employees that whatever good thing they do, they will receive back from the Lord, whether they be slave or free. There are rewards for those who faithfully serve the Lord in the marketplace. And as we're reminded from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, what you sow, you will reap. Therefore, as employees, we should be loyal. Loyal to the Lord, loyal to the business, loyal to our employers, recognizing that the Lord is going to give us his rewards. With that in mind, let's turn to the employers, the masters. One of the things he makes very clear here is that they need to do the same things to their employees. They need to stop threatening them, but rather treat them well and with respect, for they are men and women created in God's image, just like them. And Paul makes it very clear here. He warns the employer, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with God. The essential worth of all men, the respect to all men, and in the, in the idea of the employer and employee, 
uh, the offering, if you will, of just wages is not something that we can choose or not choose to do. We must do it. Because we do have a master in heaven who does not show partiality to any. With these things in mind, all of these relationships that we've looked at between a husband and wife, between parents and children, between employees and employers, are relationships that have been broken, that have been corrupted by sin. But now, through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and who paid the penalty for our sins, who rose bodily from the grave to be our Savior and our Lord, who is now living, who has risen, who is exalted in heaven, and who is coming again as our Lord and our King over all is watching. This wonderful work of God's loving grace for us as sinners, it happened to us, didn't it? When we received Jesus Christ as our Savior, we entered into a new and living way which Christ has inaugurated for us. We are reconciled back to God. And we are now able to live rightly, lovingly in our relationships, not only with God and Christ, but also with one another. And it should track right into our marriage relationships and our roles in marriage, as well as our family relationships as children to parents, and also in our relationships of commerce between employee and employer, which God has ordained. And they're all to be done, ultimately, for the praise and glory of God. This is why there has been an emphasis here at the church, in Sunday school as well as in preaching, that we as Christians develop a Christian worldview for life, which applies in every area of our lives, so that our relationships with people in this world will point them to Jesus Christ, whether it be in our neighborhoods, in our homes, or at work. This is God's master plan of salvation. Amen.